Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, please, can you take, take your seats so we can get going? Welcome, welcome to the session on IFRS 17, Data, Systems and Processes, a discussion on what will be needed in the new world. Before we get going with the session, I've got a couple of announcements to make. First of all, white Mercedes-Benz, registration number CZ21RPGP parked in the convention center parking. You have left your car door open. Um, the in-app, just a reminder on the in-app poll, please provide feedback on the speaker or speakers by completing the in-app poll for this session. And then the convention app too. There will be a prize for the winner on the app leaderboard, so be sure to vote for the speakers after each of the sessions you attend. Points are allocated as, as follows. Eight points for speaker polls, three points for a message or photo on the activity stream. Um, if you add a comment, you get two points, and if you add a like, you get one point. My name is Matthew Brinkman, and I am lucky enough to be the chair for this session. The 18th of May, 2017. Apparently it was National Museum Day, but it was also the day the accounting reporting standard IFRS 17 was, was released. The Deloitte publication from the day said that today's publication of IFRS 17 marks a once-in-a-lifetime change in accounting for insurance policies. I was interested earlier just to check um, whether the kind of thing that accountants and actuaries might consider to be once in a lifetime find its, find its way into broader news. And I found a website that had the most newsworthy articles of the 18th of May. Um, unfortunately, the publication of the standard didn't make it onto there. Um, but just for some context, number two uh, news item of the day was Donald Trump's statement that no politician in history has been treated more unfairly than him by his opponents and media. The insurance accounting standard, IFRS 17 insurance contracts, was in development for almost 20 years. The implications of the changes to the approach to determining liabilities for insurance contracts and the resulting income statement have been the main areas of discussion during this 20-year development period. Obtaining a financial reporting framework that creates a level of consistency between insurers, both life and short-term, as well as consistency with non-insurance operations has been the key focus of the IFRS 17 developments. Now that the standard has been finalized and the requirements for determining insurance contract liability set, the importance of the, of the broader business implications of the standard now come to the fore. With this in mind, in this session we will run a panel discussion with an insurance auditor, an insurance systems expert, and a data process expert to discuss case studies and experience from a similar environment, IFRS 9, financial instruments, and to bring a wider view of the work needed to be done by actuaries in life and short-term insurers to enable their employers and their clients to be IFRS 17 compliant by 2021. We have three panelists to address these issues. 
Catherine Stretton, who is a director in Deloitte's risk advisory business with significant experience of implementing data and data processes for IFRS 9. Martin Sargent, who is Global Risk Solutions Leader for FIS. FIS are a technology provider to the financial services industry, and many in the audience will be familiar with the profit actuarial modeling package that FIS provide. And then Diewald Vandenberg, who is an insurance audit partner from PwC, who brings direct experience of auditing large insurance companies and has been involved with the IFRS 17 developments through all the exposure drafts. We also have Andrew Warren with us. Andrew is insurance sector leader of Deloitte South Africa and a director in Deloitte's actuarial practice. He is also responsible for Deloitte's Africa's insurance accounting solutions, which cut across actuarial finance, data and technology requirements, and so is well placed to facilitate this panel discussion. Over to you, Andrew. Thanks, <clears throat> thanks, Matt. Yes, yeah, so IFRA 17 has been coming for a number of years, and, and the context of this is that I think we've seen a lot of presentations about how the technical calculations are going to work in terms of calculating the various component pieces of, of the balance sheet um, and some of the income statement numbers that are going to emerge from that. Um, the best estimate liability, the risk adjustment, and, and the elusive contractual service margin that we now need to get our heads around in terms of how it starts in the balance sheet and, and makes its way into the income statement. Um, and we've spent a lot of time over the last few years discussing the difficulties around that as a profession. And I think the feedback that we've had from those sessions over a number of years have made their way back into the accounting standard setting process um, to land up where we are now. So today I don't want to dwell on the specifics of the standard, and I have been threatened by a couple of people in the audience that they're going to ask some very tough questions about basis of conclusion 235 read in conjunction with note 4 and, and, and the standard number 61, and, I, and I, I hope to dodge those questions. But I think what I want to look at is the more practical application, practical issues that need to be looked at now that we know what the standard is asking for. Um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, to get the standard in place. And I think if we look at it from an, uh, from an actual perspective, we, we have a look at the, the modeling side, we have a look at the balance sheet side, and I think we're reasonably comfortable that we can get to that, that balance sheet. But it's when we get to how the data flows through an insurance operation um, and how we lace that together before the deadlines of 2021, where things start getting a little bit more difficult to actually see our way through where we're going. Um, and so as actuaries, I think we need to be looking more, more, broad, more broadly at the finance environment and the data environment in which the, um, the uh, accounting numbers are being born um, and understand how we as actuaries need to be able to influence that um, in line with the insights that we've got. We know we're going to be relied to build, specify, validate that the, the data, the processes, the systems do what they need to do. Um, and in doing that, I think what we need to understand is some of, the, some of the learnings that we've got from other industries, in particular the banking industry, and how the technology providers are going to be looking at it. Um, and then finally, I think if we've got to recognize that the standard's a financial reporting standard. And as such, it's actually <clears throat> an accounting standard. Um, anecdotally, you know, we were sitting in the, in the discussion on the actual uh, IFRS 17 panel for, the, for life insurers, and I did a quick search on the standard. 
Um, and the number of times the word actuary or actuarial appear in the standard is a sum total of naught. So while a lot of it's birthed in the actuarial competencies of modeling and projections, it is at its root an accounting standard. And we need to make sure that we understand how the accounting framework um, uh, sits. If we look at a conceptual framework of reporting, and I think this, this starts coming down to how do we think about what financial reporting is, particularly in an environment like an insurer. What we're doing is we're taking data from source systems. So taking out data from our, our policy admin systems, from our asset administration systems, and then depending on where they are, cash book systems. We need to move it through in a, in a, in a consistent way into a modeling environment, um, do calculations on it, put it into a data store environment, and make sure that the data we're using is consistent with other applications of data. So if you have a look at this, this framework we've got, that at the bottom we've got the SAM engines, which we're calling these things engines, is that there's a whole lot of calculations done. They should be being done off the same data that's being used for financial data. And this is where some of the complexity is going to come in and some of the complexity the banks have found, getting consistency between their financial reporting and risk data and making sure it's consistent. And feeding it all the way through into a financial reporting process. I think it's fair to say if we have a look at a generic model at the moment of what IFRS, or what IFRS 4 looks like, is you'll see two streams of, of data flows. One, from our perspective, from the actual's perspective, whole lot of information coming out of the policy admin system, going to our product rules engine and our projection, uh, projection engines, taking a whole lot of assumptions, putting in there. We may get some data feeds from the, from the asset engines, and from there we produce our, our actual reserve, the life fund or, or whatever the, the, the nomenclature is used. And that's, you know, I put that generally on my diagrams at the top of the page. And at the bottom of the page, you've got cash or near cash, premiums, claims, expenses, finance data. Um, the new world, um, and for, for, you know, for the guys who, who are aware of the standard, the new world is putting the, model, the modeled output as the revenue line item in the financial statements. So how do we make sure that we're actually putting things in the right place? I think our journey with SAM has given us a high degree of maturity in the... Um, actual modeling environment. And for those who, who followed that journey, I think we've been able to do a lot to make sure that we've got robust controls around our, our projection engines, much more so than we had pre-SAM. Um, and we've developed that, but pretty much solely in the, in the actuarial space. If we look at um, where we probably could be doing more is actually looking at pillar three of SAM and saying, how do we integrate it into our reporting engines? And that's where we start having a look at where the interface between the modeling environment and the reporting environment starts playing out. So with IFRS 17, there's going to be much more need for a consistency at a much more granular level. Um, when we start looking at things like units of account, uh, the contractual service margin, which Martin will talk about now, as to how do we make sure that we have that level of consistency between the modeling environment, i.e. the actuarial space, and the finance environment, the cash book, the, the expenses, the, 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 the finance side of the business, um, and how do we make sure we link the, 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 the two together? The data-driven the data reporting change becomes important, but how do we make sure that we, we look at it? Um, as Matt mentioned in his, in his intro, we've got, we're privileged to have three great panelists here with different perspectives from their, from, from their view. So if we look at the banking side, um, BCBS 239, which is the a regulation governing the principles for effective risk data aggregation and risk reporting. Um, and IFRS 9 posed some big challenges for data. We, we actually discussed some of the aspects of BCB, BCBS 239 this morning in the, in the risk session. Um, and so Catherine will just give us a view of what's been done in the banks, what's their journey looked like, and how long has it actually taken. 
Um, and then if I look at it from about eight months ago, I was already being spoken, you know, approached by a number of software vendors saying these are solutions we've got. And it's really important that if we look at our employers or our clients as actuaries, they're saying, well, what do we need to be looking out for in terms of what are the system requirements, what do we need to be, need to be doing to be able to fulfill the data needs and the calculation needs in the same time frames that we've currently got. I think at a very high conceptual level, we can think about IFRS 17 as requiring an analysis of surplus done in a normal financial reporting time frame. And I think that's the sort of starting point that gets people quite scared about what needs to happen in a short space of time. Um, Martin from, from FIS will, will go through his view of what the key components of, of those systems are. And then finally, the results are going to have to be auditors, as I, as I said, the, the, the key standards that are counting, it's a financial reporting standard, and in, in that third line of defense is we need to be able to audit those. Are they compliant with the standard, and are they being controlled in a way that the auditors are satisfied and can satisfy the board that the financial metrics are actually being presented in line with the standard and can be ultimately be signed off? So each of our three panelists will give, a, give us a presentation. And then I'll be opening it to two questions. I'm going to try and keep the presentation to no more than five to seven minutes each, so we've got time for questions uh, afterwards. And I know this is the, the graveyard shift. Um, I've got a whole lot of questions. I know Matt has as well. But we were hoping to elicit some conversation between you and the panelists to build your insights and to build our understanding of what needs to happen. So I'm going to hand over to, to Catherine um, to, to start on the banking side. Um, and then uh, we look forward to a good discussion after the, the panelists. Thanks, Andrew. Um, I'm going to talk about how banks have dealt with the data challenge. And I guess the last three years has marked quite a distinct change from the old way of working to the new way of working. Andrew spoke about IFRS 9, BCBS 239, but we talk about it in terms of a regulatory tsunami. Banks are grappling right now with IFRS 9, interest rate risk in the banking book, trading book regulations. Um, in December, they'll have the first new credit risk regulation since Basel II was implemented in 2008, so that's quite a significant change, and they don't know what it really go is going to present. It's unknown at this stage. I guess like IFRS 17 was for a couple of years. Um, but I think one of the other compelling things that they're dealing with still is um, anti-money laundering and KYC. And then there's BCBS 239. So the traditional approach that banks always used to adopt in terms of dealing with regulation was point solutions. So it was really saying, let's solve for IFRS 9. Let's solve for interest rate risk in the banking book. Let's solve for BCBS 239. And all of these things had their own solutions. They sourced their own data, had different teams working on it. And as a result, the environment got quite messy. So we like to talk about the spaghetti. Data sourcing, data manipulation, reporting really represented a bit of a spaghetti. And it has enormous cost. Often that cost's invisible because it entails the efforts of the accountants and the risk personnel to reconcile numbers that should talk to each other but don't. So it talks to Andrew's finance and actuarial being aligned. But there's also innumerable, innumerable manual processes, human intervention with massive cost. And I guess the tsunami got to a point where the banks looked at their regulatory change budgets. And for the tier ones, 
the regulatory change budgets at the moment are anything from two to three billion rand. So the, the big change really was brought about by BCBS 239, which is quite unlike any of the regulation we've seen before, because regulation in risk under the Basel Committee was really about this is what we measure, this is how we model it. But BCBS 239 then spoke about different things, bringing into regulation data management practices, data architecture principles, processes around calculating, modeling, and reporting. So suddenly good practice becomes part of the regulated regime. And I, at, at that point, the banks thought through, how do we take advantage of this? How do we then create what we call a data backbone? Let's create a data asset, source the data once, use it many times, take that same asset and apply it for liquidity, for credit, for market risk, for AML. And I guess in our business we have a saying that says risk and opportunity are the two sides of the same coin. So the question is, if I've got this asset that I can leverage for risk purposes, how can I leverage that same asset to address some of my opportunity side? Better client digital experience, um, up and cross and upsell opportunities. All of those things use the same underlying data. So that brought about the concept of using data as an enterprise asset. So how do we leverage new technologies to say, I have an asset that I'm going to use to drive my business. I source the data from source systems once, and I manage and control it so that it's a, a valuable, leverageable asset in the business. So all of the tier ones at the moment are going through quite transformational exercises, banks that is. All of them are addressing new data architectures, and I guess interestingly, addressing in a formal way data management disciplines for the first time. Some of the distinctions between the tier ones are some old methods maybe, warehousing type concepts being used for the risk world, while the opportunity side is looking at new technologies, in-memory databases, big, big data technologies. Our house view is that a data architecture that sits on top of an enterprise asset should cater for both. Gartner calls it the bimodal organization, or the bimodal data architecture. So if I need to trust data, and I use it for reporting or for risk management or for actuarial purposes, it needs to go through a governed process. It probably needs to sit on a data model and change is very difficult to introduce in that environment. So new attributes added to the warehouse, it's a long process, it's governed. But at the same time in the world of analytics, and the world of opportunity, you want to be a lot more agile. You want to be able to explore data, try different things, get value out of that asset quickly, and then deploy it into the front line to improve the client experience. But the architecture, if designed properly, should cater for both and allow a practitioner to move between both. So you shouldn't be constrained in terms of what you want to do with your data and the assets of the organization. At least one tier one bank and at least one tier one insurer is currently going down this bimodal route. And it really does present a real opportunity. And I guess in the banking context, the catalyst was really the regulation, just the sheer volume of it and the expense and inconvenience that that brings about. 
looking at what risk architectures have evolved into, I think it's fair to say that with the increased move toward digitization, everything digital, client experience digital, we see a little bit of a blurring of the lines between traditional first and second line risk functions. So risk calculations are embedded in process, in the organization. Things like um, hyper-personalized pricing, real time appearing on your apps. I mean, that's something we already see. We also see that risk types, particularly in banking, where most of them are asset side, those distinctions are blurring. We use that asset to leverage insight about a transaction, a client account. Um, or a client itself. And those particular entities have many dimensions of risk. So it could be credit, it could be liquidity, it could be interest rate risk. And we look at the entity and all its risks together. I guess the one thing to point out on that slide is reference to reference data. I guess in your world, market data and projections about market data are key. And one of the disciplines I, uh, BCBS 239 brought into play was saying let's treat in a governed way market data as reference data. Let's govern an enterprise view of what our projections and our scenarios are and let's use technology to help us synchronize that view across all our risk applications, both asset and liability side. So I guess that will feature too in your thinking about IFRS 17 if it hasn't already. The other is obviously a world that treats data as an asset that can answer any type of questions. Needs to be granular, so transaction account level. I think that's going to pose quite an interesting problem in the insurance world given the sheer volume of data that you guys deal with when you do your calculations. But at the same time, it's going to become a real-time asset. So we had, I noted a, a blog yesterday by Chris Skinner, who's a banking futurist, saying the future of banking is open source and it's real time. None of our tier one banks currently deal with data in a real time way. They're very much overnight batch, even in their trading operations. But interestingly, the fintechs that are competing against banks in South Africa, the likes of Jumo, the likes of MyBucks, Rainfin, all of these guys have leveraged new types of technology open source, real time. And clients, and I guess you've got your lemonade example, I'm sorry to be a non-insurance person mentioning rain for, um, lemonade, but clients become to expect a real time experience. So even if the banks are slow to move, they will have to move to keep up with non-banking competitors. And then finally, it's good to have lots of real-time data quickly available in any environment you want, but if it's rubbish, it doesn't help you much. So I mentioned banks addressing data management principles for the first time, and it really, I mean, there has been data management in banks, but not formally. So there are two sides to this coin. There's a big technology drive. It's things like definitions, business, technical, operational definitions of data. It's about lineage, tracing the provenance of a data element from when it's created right through to the time it's gone through a calculation process and gets reported in a report. They're setting standards for data, it's testing the data against those standards. 
It's understanding what the root cause of bad data quality is, and that's always around the operating model. People, processes, and systems, something's broken. And then once you've figured out what the root cause is, the data governance function then takes up the role of initiating all kinds of data quality remediation projects and running them as a portfolio of work. So the technical, I guess, is easy to put on a piece of paper. It's easy to buy the tech. The difficult thing is making the guys that originate and deal with data in that process understand why it's important and do the right thing in terms of creating quality data, using the data in a responsible way in calculations, and using and interpreting metrics correctly. And I think this is the last hurdle for banks they, they, into their implementation journeys. I believe the transformation that I've described is a five to ten year exercise. It's all planned. The one thing I don't think they've figured out yet is this human element. How to influence hearts and minds of people to be responsible about data and to prioritize its quality. Yeah, so, <clears throat> thanks, Kath. Thanks, Catherine. So, so data feeds into systems, and I suppose now I'm making it more practical in terms of how to actually apply in a modeling environment and, and the level of granularity that's now needed in IFRS 17 and particularly the supplemental reporting that's going to be required in terms of supplemental reporting. Um, yeah. um, what's the view, Martin, around how systems are going to respond to that and what are the key things that IFRS 17 is going to demand of particularly the, data, the, the, the systems that they actually is going to be dealing with? Yes, yeah, so I think there's four main areas that actuaries is going to need to contend with and finance systems. The first one is the calculation. So it's a new set of calculations that you'll do alongside SAM. Some of them are familiar, like best estimate liability. There's a risk adjustment and things that are not quite so familiar, like the contractual services margin. So the calculations will require level of disclosure as well, which will be fairly onerous in terms of analysis of that change in IFRS 17 which again is going to require more calculations and Andrew said in a similar time frame. So I think as we come on to similar questions, but some of the things that insurers around the world are looking at is public cloud computing in terms of getting access to more um, compute capabilities at the right time that they can flex up to still meet those time frames, even though doing more calculations. The actual systems will be completely embedded into the finance function so the CFO is going to be consuming data from the actuaries, and they're going to want to make sure that's done in a well-governed process. So Catherine mentioned spaghetti, a manual process, and I think through the SAM journey, I think a lot of insurers would have um, tackled some of that spaghetti, and manual process, but being in the UK as well, I think you know, within Solvency 2, it does give insurers effectively an advantage in terms of IFRS 17 and governance, but I would definitely say there's a long way to go with many insurers, and I'm sure that's the same in South Africa as well. Um, so, you know, that brings me on to the, the second challenge is governance. So having governance around the whole end-to-end -end and thinking about the assumptions management that's going in, security on that, the roles and permissions, who's approving assumptions before they get anywhere near the models, the change management of the models, which you'll be doing as part of, of SAM as well, um, how you execute those models, and then how you deal with those results and the data, which is really the third big challenge is data. So um, 
I think we're a long way away from real-time data and real-time calculations. But I think things like cloud computing and some of the um, distributed file storage that's up in the cloud brings that a step closer. Um, but certainly Excel really won't cut it in this way. And data in an IFRS 17 context is also going to be the data interchange between the finance and the actuarial world. So at some point, and we'll probably get into that in terms of some of the Q&A, it's going to be a handover to the finance team. And that handover could be at the cash flow levels or it could be at the contractual services margin level. And you know, the ISB made a concession in terms of the unit of account being at a grouped contract level to make it easier for insurers to comply with so it's not at a policy level. However, the grouping and the unit of account is challenging in itself in terms of how you come up with those unit of accounts and tracking and monitoring of those. But certainly, if um, you are doing per policy cash flows and you're sending that out of an actuarial system into a sub-ledger system to do the CSM, um, there's clearly a lot of data that's required in monthly cash flows for multiple years at the policy level. Um, and clearly less than if you're calculating CSM at a cohort level and transferring that into the finance system. And really the fourth point here is able to support the business and managing your business in IFRS 17 world. So it is an accounting standard. As Andrew said, it doesn't mention actuaries once. Um, I think actuaries need to be involved in these projects and being cooperating with the finance teams and effectively getting a seat at the table because the actuarial calculations are the heart of it. Um, but think of how your role will change post day one compliance in terms of managing the business. So business planning, where are you going to be in five years time, the type of business, the whole profit emergence has now changed, how you're pricing um, policies. I think South Africa, again, having gone through SAM and being similar to, um, to, to Europe in many respects in terms of the methodology for value and liabilities, probably doesn't have the same challenge as some countries where really fundamentally are looking at changing the products that they sell because obviously you want them to look profitable on an IFRS 17 basis. And, but I'm sure there will be some changes to terms and um, conditions that you'll look to make to kind of um, maximize IFRS 17 profitability. So an actuary's role in this project, so I think you've got a big role to play in steering the um, system selection. There's, from the cash flows to the, um, the accounts, there's a lot of interaction in between and a lot of choices that insurers have in where things are done. And there's also consistency between accounting and actuarial systems you need to be a part of. The data repository is going to be a key uh, point that you're going to need to decide with finance as well and whether that's a combined finance and actuarial data repository or it's individual actuarial data and then the finance data consumes from that data repository. That's again choices that you need to make in terms of your kind of architecture and, and strategy. Um, and yeah, there's definitely a wider role in business planning and I think it will make some finance teams nervous that this, this is now really requiring these actuarial models to just do some of the planning that maybe they had completely in the finance team's control. So um, I think you've got a big role to play in the future, but it's also going to change the way that we work in the future as well.
<coughs> thanks, Martin. So, having produced those numbers, um, Deerville, you and your teams, from an audit perspective, will need to make sure that what's been produced is well governed and actually comes out um, in compliance with the standard. So there's some obvious items in terms of the, the audit requirements, but, but what are you seeing in your developments and your discussions with your teams around what the kind of thinking needs to happen in terms of auditing the data through the systems to, uh, to ultimately get a financial statement that, uh, that's, that meets the, the necessary requirements? Thanks, Andrew. I, th I think you know, R317 is something which is going to change the way we do the audit and probably to a large extent about how we go about doing the audit and staff up and the teams we bring to the table will make a big, it will make a big difference in, in that space. You know, for today, we, we, are, we do make extensive use of IT specialists as well as actuarial specialists, um, but I think the way that we, we tackle the audit, um, we're going to have to be far more aligned in terms of understanding exactly how everything fits together. We've heard about the data and the systems, and you can't do anything in isolation. So it's going to be key as an audit partner to bring all of those teams together to make sure that we actually pull together. Now, for me, one of the key things is the income statement. Now, looking at 17, if you look at the proposed income statement, almost none of the numbers that will be in there is going to come from your general ledger. You know, it's not going to be transaction-based. It's going to be information that comes out of models. So you won't be able to trace that to an invoice. And you know, just in terms of the, the people that work for you, and if you think about an auditing firm, to a large extent, it is a training organization. If you've got trainees coming through, do their three years articles, but you're going to have to audit a very complex system and a very complex standard. So I guess how we go about um, staffing up and doing that, and it will be quite a challenge. I think it will be interesting. And then, you know, 17 is far more grander than what we have today. I remember as a trainee, how did we test data accuracy going into actuarial models? Well, you know, what's the total premiums that went into the valuation, right? And we could tick that, right? <laughs> going forward, it is so granular, and you're going to have to track at such a granular level to make sure that things are done appropriately at different groups, because, you know, even though you put through a mortality assumption change for some groups, that gets unlocked in the CSM. For other groups, it gets taken to profit and loss because that group is now onerous. So there is so much complexity that one would need to almost start now with your audit process of 17 and walk with your clients to make sure that by the time you get to implementing it, you're in agreement with the numbers that are produced. I don't think you've got the luxury to wait until 2021 20, and then look at the model and, and get going. Um, so that adds complexity. And I think for me it's a bit how do we then bring cash that's king, you know, that's a cliche, but how do you bring the cash position back to the numbers that you actually put out to the market and to make sure that there's integrity all the way through in what you've audited from the policy of the administration system all the way through to page 23 in the annual report and to make sure that that gets reported on. And obviously just the increase in disclosures. Um, in the past, we, there, was, there was some disclosure, but now there's specific rules and principles that need to be complied with and that will need to, to be checked in a lot of detail. The area that I think will be the interesting bit is, is, is it's a principle-based standard. So although there are lots of rules in the standard, there's also lots of principle. Um, and we as auditors need to make sure that, you know, and I think that's one of the lessons from, from the SAM implementation is have the clients properly documented the decisions that they've made so that you can actually then 
look at that and, apply, and make sure that you're in agreement with with what their views are and can you live with that. And I think the disclosure of those judgment and methodologies will be far more explicit than in the past. So it's, it's a challenge for both us as auditors but also for, for the insurers. And then maybe a small thing is the risk adjustment, especially for, for this audience, um, and especially in the life space. You know, you, know, we need to, you need to produce and we need to audit the confidence level of your risk adjustment, even if you don't use that for for reporting and it's something that is not done today so that's something which which will be a bit of a challenge and will require quite a bit of work and then I guess ultimately and it's, it's been mentioned here and there it's you know you've got the actuarial teams but you also got the accounting teams and it's those will need to work together I th I'm pretty sure you in the room you know when you as you get your hands dirty with 17 there's that there's the need and the importance of the actuaries working closely with the accountants becomes just so much more important Cool. Th thanks, Diavolt. So we will throw this open to everyone for questions, but while you're thinking of yours and, and want to throw up your hands, I know Matt had, a, had quite a few on his mind, and I'll just throw the first question to Matt for the panel, um, and then give, a, give us your hands so that we can see where to take the mic to, um, to get a discussion going. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, I mean, I've got a question on the, on the people impact. We've talked a lot about data, process, systems, and a little bit about people. But, I mean, as, as, as the panelists have been saying, this is an accounting standard. Um, the word actuary doesn't appear in the standard. The, 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 some of the material that has come out of the IASB has been very clear that this is a standard that accountants need to implement, and it's been written in a way that uh, will help them understand actuarial calculations um, more easily. So, so my question is, you know, with, 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 with that in mind and with the, the, the integration that will exist between actuaries and, finan and, and, and financial accountants in, in future, are, are actuaries, you know, ready to deal with, with these changes and what, what new skills might they might they need uh, to support them with with, them, with this. So, yeah, I mean, perhaps this is one you can pick up. Yeah, you know, so I'll pick this one up because I have been thinking about it quite a bit. So I suppose one of the ways I'm starting to think about the way this standard is, is drafted and, and, and looked at, um, it is this sort of confluence between actuaries and accountants. And I suppose the way I look at it is, well, Actuaries will need to dust off accounts 101A, or I think that's what I did when I, was, when I was advised two years ago, and if I think about my whiteboard behind my desk, there are a lot of T accounts lying around there now. I'm not getting the left and right to totally correct, and the accountants come in and correct me from time to time, but if we have a look at what's happening is we're having to push all of the change items in our reserving models into some form of generalized entry. And so the, account, the, the actuaries will need to get that dusted off as much as the accountants are going to need to understand what a projected cash flow is. And I think that's, that's where I'm seeing the, the, the interplay happening. I think it, it comes together in terms of the systems that control it. Because I don't see everyone doing this on, you know, someone said, on, on spreadsheets. It's not going to happen. But unless both sides understand each other's systems and processes, it's going to be quite difficult for, for us to have common language with the finance teams. Um, do you want to know what you're seeing from the perspective of the kind of conversations you're having with your actuarial colleagues around how you're seeing the, the, the people side, as Matt puts it? I think the more we th you look into the future and you start thinking about, so when I get to 2022 and you need to audit that first balance sheet, um, it, 
and it's already a challenge today when you audit in the live space. And let's be clear, I mean, we need to integrate the actuarial teams, you need to get taxes complex, you need to get them online, and, and the IT environment is complex as well. So I think the, the core skill set is there, right? We know how to, but in terms of delivering come 2021, there's a lot of education that's still left that needs to happen to make sure that all of those players pull together when they have to produce the IFRS 70 numbers. Um, I think um, it's, it's, it's a challenge in 17 space, it's with mandatory firm rotation as well, right, in terms of, you know, what does that mean? I mean, that'll also be a, a skill set that, you know, by the time we adopt the standard, we're probably going to walk into a brand new client and you need to audit them. So one needs to be agile, you need to be well skilled in more than just the, I think the auditor of the past is going to disappear in a sense. I think you need to be able to service your client whether you service your client as the auditor or you service them as a trusted advisor, and you're going to need to understand what is relevant in the industry, and you're going to have to skill up. Cool. Did I see a hand heading up on that side? Yes, no? Any hands? Questions? Ah, Mr. Trans. Make it easy, please. <laughs> um. It's quite interesting that we, um, the panel that brought a particular South African aspect to this. If you were a, a UK actuary, uh, this conversation wouldn't be happening because US GAAP has always been an accounting standard and the actuaries do some of the sums. I think, you know, we can hark back to the old days where the actuary here in South Africa determined everything. He determined the, the, the results and the auditors uh, just had to count the beans. And then, you know, we have, uh, the auditors have appointed and, and employed actuaries to, to chat to the actuary. And, uh, and you know, there's, there's absolute evidence of the, the, the fact that if we haven't handed it back to the accountants that you ask any normal non-actuarial member of the audit committee of any life insurance company here to explain where those results came from and he absolutely lost. Um, so it's, 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 for us, it's remained an actuarial in this country and probably in the UK. Uh, if you go to continental Europe, you know, actuaries don't rule the roost there, accountants do. So I think, I think we, we need to have our own mindset change. Yeah? But I think the biggest challenge to me is, yes, the system, date and all the rest of it, but it's the interpretation of the income statement. And, we, you know, we, we actuaries need to learn very, very much how to talk to laymen. Uh, I, I can just imagine the confusion that if we use our normal actuarial speak and try and explain to an audit committee the first set of results got, that come out of this, we'll lose our credibility overnight. So I think our biggest bigger challenge is to learn to communicate these complex issues in, in easy ways rather than you know, we'll get the calculations done very quickly. We'll be good at that kind of stuff. It's, it's interpreting for lay people that's going to be the challenge. Thanks, Paul. Hi. Um, Catherine, a question for you. Um, you mentioned that uh, the experience from the banking side was that the bulk of the problem is uh, the data transformation, well, a big portion of the problem at least is the data transformation to get to that single view or at least a single warehouse of the old technology. Um, from your perspective, what are the secrets to a successful data transformation project? How 
how does that work and what, what are the keys for success? Because that seems to be the starting point of this entire journey. And if you get off on the wrong foot there, you're going to have problems all the way down where you're trying to compensate for something that wasn't implemented properly in the first place. So from your perspective, what would be the secrets of a successful transformation? Thanks, Carl. I think the key, the key secret is the right sponsorship. So the guys that are doing best have board and executive sponsorship and specifically a commitment from IT and risk to work together. But I think beyond that, to actually implement what we're talking about in terms of enterprise transformation, business also needs to be a key part of it. The guys that are struggling don't have that level of buy-in. So although the intention is to create something that's quite transformed, without the will, because it's a difficult journey, um, and without the, the full support of the organization and a commitment to working together, I don't think that it's going to be an easy road. Um, just thinking of some of the others, I guess, in something of this size, a, adopting a traditional waterfall type approach as you run up to 2021 doesn't work either. So to transform data, you've, you're dealing with a lot of uncertainty. A lot of the things that you'll try, particularly if you go down the route of implementing formal data management, is new. So I would recommend a more agile approach, which would mean cross-functional teams working together. So I'm hopping on that theme again. Risk, tech, business working together to implement quick iterative proofs. It's, it's almost sustaining a high learning cycle on what works, how the components fit together, getting small slices of the business up and running earlier rather than landing big pieces over the next couple of years. So once again, the theme is working together. And I think the other is really, I mean, it's really a change. It's a hearts and minds game. I mentioned that before. And the hearts and minds isn't only in the data community getting the data right, but it's in value. So I think to adopt a process where you can take burning platforms or things that the organization's grappling with and show how the new way of working and the new technologies and the new data enablement help solve, because that will make people believe. And I guess in something that's a seven to 10 year journey, belief is really the core ingredient, belief and commitment. Uh, uh. Colin van Sonia from AFBOB. Uh, just any comments around application of IFRS 17 to mutuals? Because uh, I understand because the uh, policyholders own the profits, there might be some second order impacts on uh, the CSM and possibly the RA, which may make IFRS 17 not such a big body as Sam was. So, so yeah, so there's one of the difficult questions. So you're fired, <laughs> as Trump would say, seeing as he was, around, he was in the news on, this, on the 17th of May. So, so moving a bit off topic, but if we follow the principles of what the contractual service margin is and what the fulfillment cash flows are, there's a view emerging that says that mutuals actually have zero CSM and that actually they have a zero balance sheet. So what you land up with is, is all future cash flows go to all current and future policyholders. And if you actually model that, you land up with a best estimate liability equal to the value of the total enterprise 
and then you'd end up with a rather obscure situation of no IFRS balance sheet. Um, but it's, you know, and, and how the, the disclosures then work out. So, you know, personally we're working with our, with our foreign colleagues to have a look at it, how it works out with the mutuals. Um, but it does, if you follow the logic and, and some of the basis conclusions on mutuals, there is that element to it. Hi, uh, Peter Trope. Um, in Andrew's slide at the beginning, uh, I saw at the bottom you had SAM engines feeding into things. So this is actually a question for Martin. Is in the European context, um, to what extent do you see insurers relying on their Solvency II engines, for example, uh, sort of feeding into their IFRS uh, engines? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think from an engine point of view, there's a lot of similarities with Solvency II SAM and IFRS 17, so things like the best estimate liability. So those models would effectively be the starting point, different sets of assumptions going into them, and different groupings in terms of the unit accounts going into those. So they are reusing a lot of what they've done for Solvency II in terms of the models. And equally the governance, I think, around the investments you've done for SAM as insurers have done for the Solvency II are being reused. So I think in terms of this slide with the SAM engine, it would kind of be, I would draw it differently with really those calculation engines because I think there is quite a lot you can leverage um, from the SAM engine that you've got. But there are different calculations. So there's, you could have separate engines or it could be layered on. I think the kind of more interesting discussion is probably around where does that CSM live? And I think that's something that insurers we're talking to a lot about where that lives. And I think that comes down to this finance and actuarial and effectively who's in the driving seat and where does that live. And I think that could also impact whether it's effectively an IFRS 17 cash flow engine feeding a sub-ledger to feed the general ledger which would do the CSM or whether the CSM's embedded within the IFRS 17 engine. So, yeah, I would see them very close. Um, you could have them shown in a different box, but they would certainly use a lot of the code. I'll, I'll keep watching for hands, but there was an important issue that was raised, and I think, Catherine, I think you can, if you can answer it from a bank perspective, Matt, if you can answer it from a business perspective, and then, and then Martin and Deval chip in. The... IFRS 17 as a financial metric, or IFRS as a financial metric for insurers has never been widely adopted. Um, and we've talked about you know, the extent to which IFRS 17 could impact performance measurement. So, Catherine, in terms of IFRS 9 and the way banks have adopted it, and from my understanding, the regulator is looking much more in terms of the IFRS 9 numbers from a regulatory perspective. So it gets a, an immediate use case from the, from the regulator. Um, but Matt, then from a business perspective and saying, well, how relevant is IFRS 17 going to be and how much is it going to drive management reporting and therefore what are the implications of that in terms of particular level of granularity where business is producing management reports at a different, different level, particularly um, uh, product or, or, or channel um, uh, metrics. So, so Catherine. So I guess, I mean, we've got distinct worlds in, in Banking. You've got the regulated world in terms of Basel and you've got IFRS 9 and they are different. Um, in terms of BCBS though, it's the glue that holds it all together. So the regulated world are all 
those models which drive information upon which management makes decisions. So suddenly we need to apply this governed lens to even management reporting. So right at the, the lowest part of the organization where business decisions are made. So it really is enabling risk in terms of Basel, finance in terms of IFRS, and then basic MI, so the business decision-making lens. It glues those together and effectively mandates that those come out of the same architecture, the same data architecture, with the same processes and controls. When I spoke about provenance and lineage, you would need to understand how data elements feed each of those worlds and how those worlds are reconcilable or not to each other. So it is quite, as we say seven to 10 years, it's because you've got to unwind those types of things. But I think it automatically brings those three parts into harmony. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the perspective from, from the inside of an insurance company and an insurance group, um, you know, when I look, looked at the IAS, IASB's effects analysis, they, they were certainly of the view that um, IFRA 17 is likely to result in a reduction in the number of sec secondary me metrics that insurers and insurance groups uh, report. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's from the disclosure perspective. I think as, as companies have actually started the implementation, though, I've, I've heard the view from, you know, uh, particularly a number of UK and European insurers that they don't think that will be the case, that actually there might be more uh, secondary metrics in, in future, which, you know, I think would be a, a real shame if, if that is how it ends up. And I think, you know, my perspective would be that it would be really great, really desirable if we could get to a, a single framework that, um, much like Catherine was saying, that in, you know, encapsulates the parts of this. That doesn't mean there might not be other metrics needed as we have currently for internal management of the business, but if, if, if they're all in a single framework, so obviously elements of the, the liability under IFRS 17 are similar to uh, SAM, um, and potentially, you know, uh, there's, there's a question obviously around then the, the future of embedded value and when, whether parts of IFRS 17 can replace that. So I think, you know, I think it doesn't, I don't think you need, um, you need to, uh, you know, be, be too concerned about IFRS as a standalone metric and then all the other metrics that need to be developed or put around to support that. I think the key thing for me is to put it into a reconcilable framework so that if, so that users of information can see and take what they want from IFRS 17 reporting, but they can easily see how that re uh, reconciles to other information you might be talking to the market about or management might be using to run the, to run the business. And Matthew, I think from my perspective, I think maybe one thing to add is if globally, if we all rep do report on IFRS 17, which is consistent, I think at least there's a common starting point of where we can start off with looking at performance and then add on some metrics. Um, whereas if you look at better value reporting in South Africa versus 
um, Europe, where in Europe, so between the two countries or two jurisdictions, there's three different bases of reporting performance. If we can at least get to the same starting point, I think that's a good start. And then from there, hopefully, you know, over time, um, different metrics will converge into something which is more common and consistent. Yeah, I think on the day that it was issued, IFRS 17, the ISB, you know, the whole reason for doing this is globally consistent accounting standard, replacing a myriad of different accounting rules. So it'd be a real shame if that doesn't kind of be the key metric that insurers are using. And I think the transparency that it brings the investor community as well, I think should benefit insurers as well. And again, I think that should be the, the, the metric that insurers are using um, as a primary metric. Here's the mic, sorry. Question up from the front here. I'd just like to comment further on that uh, interesting uh, subject matter. So we discovered, or Mutual discovered, that the, uh, after the embedded value um, sort of was let, where people were disappointed in, the, in UK about embedded value reporting, they were less interested in it. But the South African analysts are still very interested in embedded value reporting. The United States, which has never allowed its upfront uh, profit to be released, it also has the equivalent of a, of a service margin. The, the analysts don't need embedded value there. Embedded value is only used in the UK for mergers and acquisitions. And I think it, if, if we really believe that um, IFRS 17 results are consistent enough that you don't need the present value of future uh, contractual service margins to be disclosed, but that a multiple of, of IFRS 17 earnings is a, is a valid um, valuation metric, then I think we'll achieve what we're hoping to achieve. And I think it, it's, it's, uh, that the industry itself, and maybe the big players in the industry, should actually form working groups to try and find some way of persuading the analyst that that will be what the future will look like. Because once an analyst has demanded that you pr provide him with embedded values again, you, you're never going to get, you're never going to move out of that. So I, I really would urge the life assurance um, committee of, of the actual society to start thinking about that. Thanks, Paul. Question at the back. Hi, it's Jakula from EY. Just on the transparency point, I totally agree that you know a world where we want to go to is transparent reporting. But does the principal nature of the standard promote transparency? Oh, sorry, uh, consistency. I'll go for that one, I guess. Um, I would argue that the after 17 brings a measurement standard to the table, as well as how to report financial performance. But without the additional disclosures that is brought, I think it would have been useless. So I believe that the disclosure that they've given in the standard about um, the components of that measurement, together with you know, what is in your CSM and how you expect that CSM to unwind over time, that level of transparency, those disclosures are the ones that are key. If you think about it, if we had those disclosures in IFRS 4, in a SAP 104 world, I think reporting would have been a lot better than what it is today. Um, so I think it's those disclosures more so than the actual measurement standard itself that will make the difference in the long run. Matt, you got any comments? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think it's it's um I think that's that's right uh, there is a lot of choice uh, you know the, it is a principles based standard there are a number of ways you can 
implemented um, there's choice allowed uh, the, the risk adjustment is an example where you can choose a, a methodology um, that gives you or your choice of methodology will give you can give you vastly different answers. Um, coverage units is a, is another example, um, and I think that is why the additional disclosure requirements are there. Um, it's it, it's going to be interesting to see. I think if you know again to Paul's points about different markets, I think the consistency will come. It, there's no doubt there will be more consistency uh, across insurance company reporting. Uh, globally for the countries that, that do implement it because some are on you know book value accounting others are on something else in South Africa that's you know there's less uh, there's less difference um, so I think that'll there will be more you know global uh, consistency which will be a, a good thing um, and you know it'll be up to then the whether the, the disclosures that are required support um, support the different choices of methodology that companies will make. Thanks. We have time for one more question. So, yeah, so thank, thanks very much. Um, so, firstly, thanks very much for the panel, Catherine, um, Martin, and Deerbolt. Um, for, for giving us their time and perspectives, I think it's always good to bring in some outsiders to have a look at how, this, how, this, how, this, um, how the, the lay of the land looks. I think we can see from this that this is not a simple exercise, and I think the timelines we've been given to do it are starting to create some tension in terms of where we're at. Um, but I think if we start looking at it from a data perspective and understand the processes that data goes through and realize that it's an integrated solution between the actuaries and the accountants, which is where the historic process has been very much a separated uh, process, I think we'll get to the answer more quickly. So. As I say, thank you very much for your participation. I'm going to hand back to Matt for, I think, some mm. um, news from there, some, some housekeeping close-out. Yeah, thanks. Uh, we've got an alarming red flashing light in front of us because we've uh, run out of time. So just lastly to say thank you to Andrew for his facilitation of the session and, and, and pulling together all the experts on this. So thanks a lot.